0: Are looking live.
1: I don't believe what I just saw. This is possible.
0: Live from the most beautiful place on planet Earth, it's the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett. I'm Chris Moore.
2: And I'm Sam Mulberry.
0: I sense skepticism. I'm going to go out and there's learn... There's a freeze taste. warning for tonight, dude. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> go it's my tulip. And sunny and there's green things growing and it's not too hot. I love May in Minnesota. I'd love it more if there was a baseball
3: game to go to, but... I love- Here's the ultimate dad joke. I love May in Minnesota, especially when it falls on a weekend. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> have your kids started identifying dad jokes? I, I've been like, no. my kids will tell the joke and then they'll say, oh, that's a dad joke. I just we're at, feel insulted at this point. We're at yes. a
3: different stage of life. My, kid, my older kid just discovered that there are books full of jokes that have been pre-printed for you. Please send help. I need help. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so so my kids have cuz my kids are a little bit older than both of yours so here was here's been my counter is that I because they get sick of dad jokes um, which come just organically out of me i have created a character called dad who has retired from comedy who and the idea is you walk right up to the dad joke and then you don't do it and you're just very serious it drives them crazy Uh,
0: okay well i this is uh, uh the second to last week of our class history and politics of sports at bethel university at this point we're giving students a kind of choose your own adventure feel as we look at the future of sports just a little bit so in our second segment we're we're going to follow the adventure that I set up, which was journalism, media, and celebrity. We're going to talk to Jared Nelson, a Bethel alum, who has worked in sports journalism, was a journalism uh, major at Bethel, and now is editor-in-chief of uh, Prep Network. Is that right, Chris? That's correct. Prep Network. So we'll talk more uh, to Jared in a second. Uh, we're going to talk to Chris just a second about his adventure, which had to do with gambling, not his personal adventure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's mean, an important to be topic. Clear. Uh, before we get to it, though, like we, we do need sports to gamble on. Were we allowed to gamble on it? We don't have a lot of them, but there are at least some hints of one sport reopening, and that would be baseball. Uh, not in the United States so much, but South Korea and Taiwan's professional leagues, uh, which are reasonably big deals in those countries, have reopened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Korea, I think, is especially into the KBO, right? the Korean Baseball Organization, A, because it's being broadcast kind of in America. I don't have cable, but Sam, I was told that Carl Ravage was broadcasting from his living room.
2: So two days ago, my son said, did you know there's a Korean baseball league and it's on TV? So my son has been watching Korean baseball.
0: I mean, it's I, I read a 538 piece about this that I shared with students. And it is kind of interesting the way they're coping. Like right now it's empty stadiums, but they're going to kind of scale up like 20% capacity, 40%. Uh, they're having tie games. Like you can only go, I think, to the 11th or 12th inning. They don't want to use up benches they have like 30 or 50 man rosters um, Hmm. because there's no minor leagues to call up for injury, uh and they they have kind of an interesting playoff system as well but um um, major league baseball is not yet open but there was a lot of noise about mlb reopening uh coming from someone that uh i think at least a couple of us know pretty well former twins not quite great trevor plouffe it was an entirely service can we say twins good Twins good, Trevor, good. he was a pretty good third baseman, yeah. uh, had a nice run, went on to play for a couple of their teams, and has a pretty good Twitter Twitter handle, and he was claiming that multiple baseball sources, which I assume is former players and coaches, managers, were yeah. telling him they had been told that spring training will start early June with a July 1 start date for a shortened season. Now, other baseball journalists like Jeff Passan um, uh, have, have denied this, and they usually have pretty good MLB sources. But I was reading a piece by Craig Calcaterra, who is a lawyer slash baseball blogger whose daughter went viral earlier this year. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. He suspects what's happening is baseball actually had made this plan, but they're they're holding their cards close to the vest just in case something goes wrong as states reopen. uh, If there becomes evidence of another surge happening, if public health authorities push us in a different direction, they can deny everything. But if we trend in another direction, sometime in June they'll go ahead and announce it, and everyone will be excited. The baseball is coming back. So I don't know if that's that's fair or not. But um, the reason I wanted to bring it up is there was an op-ed in the New York Times this week by Scott Boris, Super Agent <laughs> Scott Boris. I don't know if he's an entirely objective um, participant in this debate, but he might no. argue <laughs> that baseball should reopen for the national good. He likened this to Franklin Roosevelt issuing a famous letter during World War II saying that while baseball players would be drafted, baseball should continue because war workers needed entertainment, entertainment, Americans needed distraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, He cited 9-11. He cited the Red Sox and David Ortiz after the Boston Marathon bombing. He said, this is somewhat similar, and for the good of the nation, if we can come up with some kind of solution, baseball owes it to the country to get back on the field. (laughs) Again, I sense skepticism on the other end of our Google Hangout meet connection.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm skeptical, not because I don't think baseball is a national good. In fact, I think sports would provide a certain kind of unification process, Mm -hmm. not dissimilar from 9-11, but there is a big difference, which is that unlike the very idiosyncratic and ultimately quite narrow cast of a terrorist attack or a bombing at at a marathon, this is a pandemic. And... We're going to start up sports, whether it's football or baseball or basketball, with the knowledge that after we start, some percentage of players are going to get sick, and that's going to really temper, I think, enthusiasm. Because what happens when you know we restart baseball and then some random middle relief pitcher is like, "Well, oh, well, he's not on the team right now because he's actively fighting COVID," right. and I think that's going to really change how the whole idea, the whole thing is perceived.
0: Well, and I don't think people realize what that would mean. So back to the Korean example, Korea is a little bit different because they have so successfully tamped down, and they have such extensive testing and tracing. It's it, it's not it's not the same kind of issue it is here. Mm-hmm. But if I remember reading the five thirty eight piece right, if a Korean player tests positive, or at least I don't know if they have to be symptomatic or not, but if they test positive, I think they actually suspend play. I don't know if it's just that team or the whole league, but like for weeks at a time. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, this this. That seems very likely to happen, right? Like one way or another. It's not just like you remove that player, quarantine them for two weeks,
3: everything else goes on. This is why the NBA and the uh, MLB have were both pursuing these kind of bubble strategies mm-hmm. where all the players would live in one central location, which sounds like a, an amazing reality show, but would probably be terrible in practice for the sport. And could you imagine all the NBA players living in like five Las Vegas hotels and playing oh, basketball against incredible. each other? Well, uh, no. <laughs> in my, in my sense was it – it
0: mean, at least the rumors are this is being vetoed by – players right and this Absolutely. is where baseball is a very strong union those players yeah. don't want to be away from their family for months at a time and i mean I, I think one way or another there can be some players who won't want to play for their own safety for the good of mm-hmm. their families anyway what happens to them are they penalized Absolutely. salary right yeah. um so chris i'll ask you to as a segue um, what are the odds the major league baseball is playing games that count as of july 1st uh one in five okay Sam, you want to take? Over? I'm
2: gonna go. I'm gonna go the take the over on that. I think okay. there's a. I think there's a big push to. Uh, my prediction is there will be a big push to get to get something out there. Um. So, yeah. I, I I'm gonna if I can if I can sort of mix, uh, MLB and NBA and say one of those two, then I'll, I would I would put it at uh, three and five that one of those
3: will be. Happy. Okay. See, I actually think it's higher for the NBA. So I would um, if you if you give me both. What did you say, Sam? One in three, three? And
2: five, sixty percent chance.
3: Mm, I'll go. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll go. go 50, I'll go over whatever you do. I'll go 50-50 for uh, one of the two leagues starting by July.
2: Uh, I'll take whatever the over of whatever you say because you're cautious, Chris, and I'm I'm bullish on sports starting back.
0: Okay, and now we're talking gambling. And I've got two people <laughs> who know a lot more about gambling terminology than I do. So Chris, just briefly, uh, because students had the choice, about it seemed like half of them followed me down the path of journalism, half of them followed you into gambling. For students who didn't watch your lecture and do the readings you suggested, just what were a couple <laughs> of things you talked about relative to sports and gambling that you'd want them to think about?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna replicate the lecture here, and let me just say that if you if you're one of our students listening and you have not listened to the lecture yet, and you have attempted the Monte Carlo quiz, what the heck are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> but um, but in all seriousness, you're probably not listening to this lecture if that was you. So or this this, this podcast. So in all seriousness, um, the the idea of gambling of of sort of wagering on probabilistic uh, chances that are, that you can't control is you know, in ancient behavior and we have evidence of gambling going back to ancient civilizations in the United States, as Sam talked about in our last podcast, a lot of the early American gambling has really revolved around horse racing. There was some gambling on prize fights and other kinds of things as well, but the really the institutionalized, that's a big buzzword for me in this class, but the big organized systems of gambling in the United States were based on horse racing. And, they really tracked with the formation of the country. So as the country became more of a national, uh, a national country than a collection of colonies or collection of States, especially after the civil war, horse racing became a national sport and gambling became a national enterprise surrounding, surrounding that. But over time it has expanded in a lot of ways to a lot of other kinds of sports too, both to those sports benefits. It's caused people to pay attention to sports, but also to their detriments, right? us. um, uh, gambling essentially was one of the ma- major nails in the coffin of, of uh, boxing um, and by introducing not just a lot of money into boxing, but a lot of the taint of corruption and organized crime and some of the other things that go along with gambling because ultimately a lot of gambling has been prescribed over the course of its history. We've we've kept um laws against gambling pretty substantial laws against lots of different kinds of gambling which only in recent years have begun to be relaxed in a couple kinds of ways and one of the other big points i made about gambling in the united states is how the change how changes in technology have affected it one of the pieces of legislation i focused on was the pespa law which was passed in uh, 1992 so not that long ago at least by my 40 year old time frame 1992 does not feel that long ago um and, uh, was designed to basically keep, uh, sports gambling out of professional and, um, amateur sports. So out of college and, and college basketball and college football, and out of the NBA, NFL, NHL, uh, those kinds of things. And over that law is, is now defunct. Um, and because, uh, ultimately, um, The Supreme Court ruled that states uh, could decide for themselves on gambling. And there's this really interesting push-pull between professional sports leagues and their desire to keep gambling out to to essentially preserve the patina of integrity in their sport and states that want to generate revenue uh, from people who want to wager on sports. Right. So, Chris, we have a kind of COVID discussion
0: board on our, our class management site, Moodle, mm-hmm. and an article you shared this week came from The Atlantic, which I think is a magazine both of us read quite a bit. And it mm-hmm. talked about what's happened to sports gambling under COVID, because in a sense, like, it did seem like sports gambling was on the ascendancy
1: in oh, absolutely. many respects,
0: right? Yeah. And even some sports leagues moving teams to Vegas, which was
3: kind of beyond the pale for
0: years. Right. But obviously, COVID has put a damper on that, right?
3: Yeah, So let me just say really quickly here, Vegas is a really interesting case um, because it has so long been a hub of gambling that that in and of itself has essentially repelled professional sports franchises because we used to think of gambling as something that needed to happen really in direct proximity to the event taking place, right? And a lot of the history of gambling about about horse racing was you went to the horse track, you watched the horses race, and then you bet on the horses. But with the rise of things like uh, paramutual gambling, um, and Sam could take could talk more about this. But uh, sort of being able to offsite or off-track betting, watching horse races that aren't where you're at, and over time, the expansion of you know the internet allowed people to bet on sports where they're not proximate to them, and with the relaxation of of, of gambling laws around the country there was no real holdup or no real impediment for Las Vegas, having an NHL team and soon an NFL team too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, now that we're in the midst of COVID and, and the midst of pandemic sports have kind of dried up and there's not really, uh, not really a American league to be wagering on at this time. And so we've turned to other kinds of pursuits, including South Korean baseball, which we were talking about just before we got on, on the recording here too. Right. Um, so it'd be interesting. I mean,
0: I think one way or another, the final essay students will write, will probably talk about COVID, its impact on sports. I don't know if that's yeah. an article that some students might want to follow up on, but we'll share that on Moodle for students and on the episode page for other listeners who might be curious. Yeah. Um, I think, Chris, you're going to attempt a, a smooth segue between your topic for this week and your topic uh-huh. coming up next week. So go
3: for it. All right. So gambling is uh, one of the reasons that gambling is such a pernicious uh, question or such a dangerous kind of question is because it involves not just um, sports and public policy, but also ethics and morality and specifically Christian morality. And some of the major um, uh, leaders opposing uh, expansion of gambling are the, some of the same forces that oppose the expansion of alcohol consumption for moral reasons. And, and the three of us teach at a Christian institution that explicitly says that people who are part of this institution are expected not to gamble in the same way it says they're expected not to use tobacco or other kinds of um, sort of social mores. Um, so I have to ask the two of you as, as, as people who I know are a little bit greener on the gills when it comes to uh, esports. Do you know what a loot box is? I think I do. That's an L O O T, not L U T E, by the way. Yes, I I I absolutely have no idea what this is. So, a loot box, I'm happy to tell you, is something that you can earn in a number of different kinds of video games, which give you some kind of permanent um, asset inside the game. So for example, in an adventure game, it might be a new costume for your character or a new kind of weapon or even like a dance move that your character can perform that they couldn't do otherwise. And these are very prevalent in games, but uh, game designers have learned that, Uh, these are very lucrative. And so they don't just give them away, but they actually charge you and you can pay money to essentially take a roll of the dice or a gamble to see if you'll get that coveted item that you really want for your character. And some people drop real money on these kinds of loot boxes. And so even though the game itself might cost $60, there's some evidence that suggests that players will double that with their purchases on loot boxes. And, uh, uh, there was a study that I shared with with the students in my lecture that suggests that people who have a higher propensity to be problem gamblers also show a higher propensity to be problem loot box purchasers. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is why uh, some states have shown an interest in regulating video games, much like gambling is regulated because of these kinds of gambling-like behaviors in the, in the games themselves. Wow. So, Chris will be talking about
0: esports next week and fantasy sports, I believe. Yep, and we'll actually that's right. have a, a Bethel related guest on our podcast next week to talk about esports at Bethel. So, mm-hmm. I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to listen to that. But if you want an alternative, I'll be talking about performance enhancement and transhumanism, which I, I said a little bit about last week. when We were talking about horse racing and car racing. So, we'll be talking about steroids, doping scandals. Uh, we'll talk about disability at least a little bit. Uh, And we'll have students read an essay by a transhumanist activist who wants to do more to meld uh, man and machine than we've done so far. So stay tuned for that. We will put it on Moodle by Monday and send you an email once it's all ready to go. It'll function much like it did this past week. Okay, well, that's all just to whet your appetite for the main course, which is an interview with Bethel alum and sports journalist Jared Nelson after a break. week in sports history los angeles california may 7 1959 over 93,000 fans the biggest crowd in major league history watched dodger star sandy koufax defeat the new york yankees in an exhibition game that raises thousands of dollars to help pay the medical bills of retired dodger
3: catcher roy campanella paralyzed in a car accident the year before Moscow, Russia, May 8, 1984. The Soviet government announces it will boycott the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles in retaliation for the American boycott of the 1980 Moscow Games. While 13 Soviet allies join the boycott, the LA Olympics are a huge success, making hundreds of millions of dollars in profit and drawing huge TV ratings as the American team wins 83 gold medals.
0: Accra, Ghana, May 9, 2001. A soccer match between Ghana's two most popular teams ends in tragedy. After the host side scores two late goals to win, visiting fans throw bottles and plastic seats onto the field. When police fire tear gas into the stands, thousands rush to the exits, which are locked. Over 120 people are crushed to death. The worst
3: stadium disaster in African sports history. London, England, May 11, 2013. In one of the greatest upsets in FA Cup history, Wigan Athletic defeats Manchester City at Wembley Stadium. In the same season that was relegated from the highest level of English soccer, Wigan defeats the reigning Premiership champs on a late header by midfielder Ben Watson. Which Maloney takes, and it's in! It's Ben Watson! It's Ben Watson for Wigan Athletic! They've surely won the FA Cup! For Dave Whelan, for Roberto Martinez! You just...
0: You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to segment two of this week's episode of the 252. Uh, in recent weeks, we've been in a lot of conversations, Sam, Chris, and I, but we actually like using the segment to bring in other kinds of voices to not just the podcast, but the class. And so this week as we talk about sports journalism and media. We want to talk to an actual honest goodness sports journalist who not too long ago was sitting in classrooms like the ones that you students were sitting in. Uh, please welcome to the podcast, Jared Nelson. Jared, thanks for joining
1: us. You bet. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So, Jerry, you sure, was, graduated
0: from Bethel, was it three, four years ago?
1: Yeah, 2016, May of 2016, I, I graduated. So I was, I'm hitting my, my four-year mark now, officially having been out as long as I was I was there. Okay. Oh, and like you
0: major in journalism, but I think also minored in political science. So it sounds like you knew Dr. Moore a little
3: bit.
1: That I did. Like I a, had... I that had, sounds had, like an I mean,
3: ideal study program. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. I, I, had a, uh, I had international relations there and really... Um, you know, just like any student liberal arts trying to figure out what what I was into and and just loved political science, always loved history, always loved kind of that, that approach. And so um, I I picked that up about halfway through and and really kind of relished relished my time in in those classes.
0: Cool. So Jared is currently editor in chief of prep networks. We'll talk more about what that is and what he does. But we always start these interviews just by asking what is your sports story, Jared? and however you want to tell that athlete fan participants and eventually journalist of course what's your sports story
1: yeah it goes back as long as i can remember i'm being being just interested being a fan um you know grew up loving the twins loving uh the timberwolves vikings just you know watching sports with my dad i have two brothers um playing sports and that is is what led me to Bethel, um, and I played basketball, baseball, football um, growing up, and then led me to Bethel as a basketball player. Um, I, I kind of specialized in high school, um, and it, well, it was fortunate enough. My dad was was a Bethel guy; had always been around, and got connected with the coaches um, when I was a sophomore, junior in high school, and. Really, I didn't even didn't even apply anywhere else. This was, it was kind mm-hmm. of here for me, and was was really fortunate to um, be on the team, play four years. Had just a, a, an excellent, excellent experience um, here, and, and always, you know, really from from the time I stepped on campus, I knew um, I, I wanted to work in sports, and and not only, um, yeah, not only loved playing, but just loved everything around the game. I've, I've loved listening to your guys's podcast and kind of being a part of the class from a, from afar, just because the type of stuff you guys talk about was, was has always been the type of stuff I've been interested in. Um, and my my relationship to sport has changed, not only as I finished playing, but um, as I've had some roles in, in sports, and, and we'll get to that in a second, but just, yeah, like what does fandom mean? And, and my, you know, thinking critically about sports as opposed to just like loving to going, watching the Twins in the summer and stuff like that, which I still love to do, but. Um, so, you know, really from day one, I met met Jared Johnson, who the former sports information um, and got plugged in and started like working, making a getting a paycheck to be around sports, which was really, really cool. As It's as cool as it sounds. Um, and uh, <laughs> And so that you know, parlayed that into um, after my sophomore year, um, I, I was fortunate enough to have an internship at the Pioneer Press and, and covered um, covered sports on in the Twin Cities for a summer. And that was the summer the MLB All Star Game was here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the, the beat reporter for the Lynx that summer, so uh, it was just like a phenomenal. I mean, for a for a you know twenty year old kid to. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to brush shoulders with John Krasinski and Jerry Zagoda and some of these like titans of twin cities media, um, you know, getting to, to, to do what they do. And so that was a great experience. Um, and then later on in, in, in college, I got to, I actually worked, got hired by the Timberwolves in the Lynx to work on their mm-hmm. media team. So their digital media department doing some, um, social media stuff marketing things like that just being able to use kind of the skill communication skills that, that i've learned and um just get to be around basketball and, and running running social media accounts for the uh the, the Timberwolves and the Lynx and this was I always tell people who that like this was before like NBA Twitter became really really big and, and cool um <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> and so like it was just me <laughs> so your so, NBA Twitter hipster is what you're saying yeah, yes yes it was I, I am an NBA <laughs> Twitter hipster but I like right now to get a job like running some of those accounts it takes years of digital media experience mm-hmm. and I was just an intern who who could talk to talk a little bit and so it was mm-hmm. a phenomenal experience there so um, after that then, I, I really wasn't sure I had worked for the Pioneer Press, like I said, and um, had, had a great experience there, but wasn't sure like the traditional newspaper route was, I, just, I didn't wanna go to a newsroom necessarily all every day. And, and so I actually, so Scott Winter um, is, is an English professor at Bethel, and, and he had come from Nebraska and had, a, had some connections there for a couple companies. And so I worked for a company in Nebraska that does some awesome, awesome work. Um, I worked there for a summer in Lincoln. Um, and, and basically they, um, it's a social media marketing agency that works with professional athletes. And so they, they have a product where they're kind of, um, working with athletes and, and doing some media, like social media work with professional athletes, a really cool company, a lot of like the name and likeness NCAA conversations that are going on right now, like they're at the forefront of. So, um, that was, that was phenomenal, but, but all through this time I was working, um, with the company that I'm with now doing just high school basketball reporting and then like traditional going to games, talking to players. Um, and and that's, I kind of came back in August of 2016 and, and started there. Um, we, at the time, there were, there were um, two full-time employees and, and I came in and kind of started to oversee the content um, publishing. And, and, you know, it's now my, my title there is editor in chief. And so what we do, we have about, about 200 um, writers around the country that I kind of oversee um, their content, what we're publishing about 2,000 articles a month. So I am not like a traditional editor like line editing um, but, but still you know looking at a lot of what they're publishing and helping them with ideas, especially I mean we, we can talk about the, the COVID stuff, but it's, it's challenging now with no events and, and nothing to cover figuring out different angles to take and how we can continue to add value and um, you know to our readers during this time.
0: So this is great, Jared, because you've you've identified several different kinds of <clears throat> journalism and media. And we should talk about the difference between those two. Let, let's start with your time at the Pioneer Press, because that's kind of where my lecture started was Golden Age of Newspapers, Grantland Rice. Yes. you know, In some respects, I think the kind of ink stained wretch still is our archetype of what sports media <laughs> looks like. <laughs> um, so let me start there. Like, What 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 did you enjoy? What was challenging about being a beat writer for a team like the Lynx or hanging around an NBA or an MLB all star game?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I enjoyed everything about it. I, I really loved the day to day, being around the players, being around the team, um, and it's there. There is a relationship component to it, and and that's what what's tough. I mean, my like what drew me to journalism, um, and what drew me to you know the skills that I had that I thought would would fit were like were writing and reading. I love to read. I love to write. Um, and so much of journalism is not it's it's about that, but it's about so much more. It's about relationships. It's about um, you know, talking to people and and figuring out, you know, okay, you gotta like just managing a relationship with with a source and things like that. and, and as a as a twenty year old intern, <laughs> reporting intern, like I'm stepping in here. And, and I don't have those. And it was actually fun. I, I remember, I mean, I'm sitting there and talking to these guys and trying to figure out how they do what they do. And they know, like at the end of the summer, I'm kind of going to be leaving. And so they, you know, they're kind of saying they're helping me out a ton. They were so gracious, but um, I, I, I just loved that experience of seeing them, you know, after, uh, after the scrum in the locker room, Kent Youngblood was the, the Star Tribune reporter at the time. And he, um, every, all the other kind of people would leave and there's blogs that are there and, and there's, And Kent would always kind of like, you know, Hey, Lindsay Whalen. And he would just kind of put his reporter, put his recorder down and he would ask her a few questions off the record. And, and then, um, it was so, just so cool. Like the expertise that he had about the game, but also just how to talk to an athlete after, you know, they just played 48 minutes and he's, you know, able to kind of empathize with their experience on the court and also like, just kind of be their friend. It was, it was really, really cool to see that. Um, dynamic at play and I mean he's th- those guys have been doing it for for decades and just to see like that how they develop that skill and um it, it was funny the other thing I would add is that the yeah like the beat, beat writer get kind of gets the gets a lot of the headlines and those are the guys that kind of we know um but there are so many events that I got to cover that were just so off the beaten path I covered the like regional disc golf championships and it was an, <laughs> the characters of the people. That I was, there it was like a like a rick riley column where he's going to these kind of random obscure things the i covered the like it was called power hockey and so it's it's a like an an adapted sport like people kind of in power chairs but they have these. oh, hockey sticks. oh it was incredible like talking to those people how excited they were and um just some some really really fun experiences getting to to go to places like that and, and um i covered like a minnesota wild um like a training camp in the summer thing and, and getting to go to the locker room. So just, I mean, they were really, the, the Pioneer Press was great about like just throwing me into stuff and, and letting me talk to a bunch of people. And as the 20 year old, you know, it's, I don't have the relationships that the beat writers had, but I was able to um still just get in there and see how they do it. And,
0: So you go from reporting on sports to actually working for a sports organization with the liberals and links, which is something I mentioned briefly that, um, you know, leagues, teams, athletes themselves are becoming, they're, I mean, they're covering themselves, right? Um, Was that a tension for you as someone who had been trained as a journalist to now work for the team in a sense, almost like more of a marketing role?
1: Yeah. um, I I wouldn't say it was a tension for me because I understood that. I was was trained well, um, you know, Professor Winter uh, was, was good about just the difference between PR and journalism. And, um, I think like my affect, I'm, I'm a, a harmonizer. I don't always like stepping on toes and, uh, asking the tough questions. That's, that's again, not, not, not the area I'm the most comfortable, but I am, I am enthusiastic. I love getting people excited for things. And so I think like stepping into that role, that marketing role was, um, it was comfortable. And I knew the difference between what the, the journalists were trying to do and what we were trying to do. And, and I have so much respect for, I love journalism as an institution and still am, am very close to that. And, but also understanding like my role here is to promote the the team. And so, um, yeah, it's that there, there's a difference there. And, and I think as, as consumers, it's important to, we, we recognize that difference.
0: Sure. So yeah. now finally, just let's close them with prep network. Um, first of all, is, is this purely digital? Is there any print dimension to this or is it all online?
1: There is no print to mention. Yeah, we, we are 100% online. So um, it's, yeah, a, a subscription that, yeah, we're, we're publishing all of our 2000 articles are, are located at, we, we have a couple different networks inside of our parent company prep network doing boys basketball, girls basketball, football, volleyball, so
0: Right. And you said around the country, right? This isn't just a twin cities.
1: Correct. Correct. We, yeah, we have 75 websites across, I think we're in like 36 different states. So covering, mm-hmm. covering a whole, a whole bunch of it. So sure, can you, I ended oh,
3: I I out, out with you here for a second. So yeah, yeah. Um, as, as you probably remember, and as our students are sick of hearing about, I'm sort of a fan of the Ohio State University. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I have, now I don't follow high school recruiting, but I I just know that you know a fine crop of young people show up every year at Ohio State to to win championships for us, uh, but other people do. And I know that there's this real, um, real industry sort of, of of following recruitment. So how much of high school sports coverage is really influenced by the recruiting angle as opposed to just following the sport itself?
1: Yeah. So this I mean this is a conversation that that we have every day because so that, that industry of recruiting is enormous. And it's all, you know, it's, it's like, and this is what we were doing largely when I was in, in Lincoln, the, the company was called Open Doors and, and Open Doors, mm-hmm. you know, they would basically take that, the, the fervor that, that comes with Ohio State football and, you know, allowing now allowing those athletes to, to monetize that, that fervor. And so, um, but, you know, if you, if you write an article on a kid in Minnesota who is considering playing football for the Gophers, I mean, gopher football fandom is, is to a smaller degree than Ohio State, but like <laughs> gopher football fans, they want to read that. They want to pay for that. And so that that industry is huge. And that's actually what we do at Prep Network. We, we definitely touch that stuff a little bit, but- our kind of entire angle, our our differentiators, we do try to go a little deeper. Um, And and we're based here out of Minnesota. We have one division one school in the state. And, you know, in a given year, we may have 10 division one basketball players. And and of those 10, maybe three to five are going to be like really national recruits. And so what we've tried to do is go a lot deeper. And we talk about MIAC recruiting and NSIC recruiting. And, you know, we're not, we're, (laughs) There aren't a lot of people following, you know, St. Olaf recruiting and Bethel recruiting, but like there, there's a really small population there that is really passionate about that. And that's like our very much our target audience are those like division two, division three, families, athletes, coaches, things like that. And then providing some visibility and coverage for those players. So it's, it's taking that Ohio state recruiting model and extending it to every school in the country. And so, yeah, yeah, that's a, a great, that recruiting piece is huge. Interesting so
0: Jared as you think about what you're doing for prep Network And as I think about what like the prep sports page looked like in the Star Tribune or Pioneer Press growing up in the 80s 90s what What is lost and what is gained with the move to these kinds of online media? Maybe they're subscription based. Maybe they're more national than local as opposed to the traditional local newspaper that probably still shapes my understanding of sports journalism
1: Yeah, um you know, honestly, it, it it's the saddest thing, <laughs> like seeing, you know, newspapers, the the deterioration, um, you know, largely, but it it is a, a part of why we're able to be viable as a website too, because um, there, it's not like there are fewer families playing high school sports and wanting to read it and follow it. And so it's really a local thing. That's, that's, you, you use that word, um, you know, the local kind of high school sports page. And, and that's, kind of going away in a lot of markets but fortunately like we work with a ton of journalists a ton of former high school sports page um people you know from the 60 year old who's been doing this for 50 years and and we're having to you know we're having to adjust a a little bit of like (laughs) their content and what they've been writing and you know they've yeah they've been covering this for years and years and years but um you know to the kid who's graduating from college now and wants to be a sports journalist but just finding a tough job market so we're still able to to kind of do that and provide that. I mean, I know my mom still has like articles cut out from when I was a high school athlete. And so we're, we're kind of able to do that now, but maybe they're just saving it as a PDF <laughs> instead, mm-hmm. or, or <laughs> instead of like cutting it out of the sports page. So still hoping to kind of capture a little of that, like that magic that you get when you see your name in print, or someone's talking mm-hmm. positively about your game where we're still kind of, kind of trying to capture a lot of that.
0: Mm. Yeah. So uh, Jared, I think um, the last two months have been challenging interesting difficult for almost anyone connected to sports can you just say a little bit about what it's looked like to do your job in the age of COVID?
1: yeah um i mean you it goes back a little bit like this industry is all over are having having their their share of troubles and, and newspapers are one of them I, I know um a lot a lot of journalists are getting laid off and that's making my job one a, a huge part of what i do is is talk to potential writers for us. And so just having a lot of conversations with people who, who have lost their, their journalism jobs, it's not fun conversations to have, but you know, we're able to provide a little bit of salve where um, giving them some work in the short term. And, and um, so that's, uh, that, that's one way. I mean, we are still, this would be a, a period now where our basketball writers are going to like summer basketball tournaments, AAU, and, and those, those aren't happening. Volleyball is the same way. Um, and so it's, it's working a lot with them to figure out new ways to do things. We've, we've really stretched out our postseason coverage and done a lot of like all state teams and, and things like that. Um, we're, you know, starting to look ahead, even looking ahead to the, the next season. All right, here are some players to watch. Here are some storylines to watch. Um, doing a lot of like city specific coverage. So just, you know, trying to figure out new angles, um, when you can't be in the gym, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but Hey, we can still add value. We can still, um, you know, promote the players. We can still uh, c- cover this scene because, like, like you're saying, you know, those they miss it. <laughs> and we're, we're able to scratch scratch a little bit of an itch um, in that way. So yeah, we it's it's been it's had its challenges, but people are, are still on the on the site and you know hopefully uh, liking liking what they're reading.
0: All right. Well, Jared, let's close by asking you, um, what advice would you have for students who might be listening? I know we have a couple of people right for the Clarion. Maybe there's some others who are newer to Bethel, still trying to pick their major their path. What if they like what they hear about what your job looks like, if they want to follow in your footsteps, what, what can they be doing right now? Um, to, yeah. Um,
1: no, and, and I think you, you, you mentioned the Clarion. I do think journalism is, is a special, um, a special field in that what you would do your first day as a journalist is is the same as what you would do on your last day and that's right that's going and talking to people that's and so i mean my experience at Bethel was filled with hours you know writing for the clarion and um in in class you know write do the do the work and so i think that's something that that's pretty cool um starting a blog like getting some some just repetition you don't don't need to have readers to just practice and so that's i think like a a pretty cool thing where that you can do is, is just just start just i mean it's then you you know have a couple conversations and say like hey i actually have been writing for a year check out my stuff i think that's that's a valuable piece and the other thing is, is just being being interested in other stuff and, and i know um just like any job, it, it's helpful to be able to draw on, on experiences from elsewhere. And so, you know, having, when conversations come up and, and journalism is, is a great example of like the monetization piece and okay, like it's it's been hard mm-hmm. and, and they haven't cracked the code necessarily on the, the business model of newspapers online. and. But just having experiences and being read, taking an economics class in college, and being read on some of this stuff—you don't have to be an expert, but just being able to add um, add a perspective somewhere else, or or being able to say, like, you know, I read a book once where blank. I just think that's so valuable. Um, you know, as as the nature of work changes, um, uh, you know, it's it's a good a good idea to to be well read and and be versed in in things other than that super specific niche. So.
3: Cool.
0: Well, Jared, we could talk for a lot longer. Chris, do you have any closing questions
3: for, for Jared? Well, to make the subtext text, it sounds like a pretty hearty endorsement for the liberal arts right there. Yeah. Um, but um, Jared, what, what's the sport that you are most concerned about returning to normal after
1: the coronavirus? Um, yeah, I think that... Hmm. I, I really do... in. This is, this is tough. Cause I, I don't think so much about like in between the lines as much as what sports are most enhanced by, you know, the culture, having the rest of the fans mm-hmm. there. Um, and so college football is one to me mm-hmm. that I, That's it's just I- like, yeah, I just, I, I think like, you know what, the NBA, they're going to, if they play it at, wherever it's going to be weird for a little bit. You're going to hear a lot more squeaks on the floor and, and it's going to, <laughs> from the, from the shoes. But um, I, I think like, ultimately that's not good, but there's just so much culture around the like spectacle of a Saturday in, in the Southeast. And I think like, have, like that being taken away um, is going to be, it's going to be different. And, and that's, it's, I don't I don't, I certainly don't have an appreciation for, if you've gone to those games for the last 40 years, what it would mean for someone to tell you, you can't go this year. You can't tailgate this year. I think like mm-hmm. that is something that um, there's going to be a little bit of a reckoning there. So um, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous for for that. I think like NFL is is a little more commercialized where they're going to be able to just say like, yeah, no fans. This, this is okay. Um, I think college is, is going to be tough. Yeah. I think you're right. I think
0: it's another example of this theme we've talked about in class, Chris, of sports uh, as a kind of religion. You know, think about Mm. the way that some Christians have responded to not being able to worship. Um, Having lived in the southeast a little bit, I know something of what Florida or Alabama or Georgia football means and not being able to go to that church on Saturday is not going to be taken well. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can keep talking, Jared, your your fantastic interview. Such a good guest. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Hopefully we'll send some students to, to chat with you some more about what this looks like for them.
1: Thanks. Please do. Please do. No, keep, keep up, keep up the good work. I've loved, loved listening and um, yeah. Well, encourage other professors too. It's, it is a a great value for, uh, for alumni to, to stay in touch and keep, keep the education going.
0: Okay. We'll be back after a short break to wrap up this episode of the 252.
2: Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com.
0: Okay. Sam is headed out, to, out the door. to one of his 20 committee meetings that he has to go to. So let's do three to see before we wrap up this episode.
3: Chris Moore, kick us off. Sure. All right. My recommendation this week is a little complicated. Next week, I'll be giving a lecture on esports. And in my prep, I was reminded of a great book, not about video games, but about board games. Check out Stefan Fatz's 2002 book on the competitive world of Scrabble. The book is called Word Freak, and it's hilarious. And then... If Fats' journey into the dark world of Scrabble whets your appetite, try playing a board game. If you need a recommendation, check out BoardGameGeek.com, a compendious, if somewhat cluttered website devoted to the pursuit. Incidentally, they just named their 2019 Games of the Year, and a game I haven't played called Wingspan dominated in a whole bunch of categories, so check that out. Last, if you need a new board game partner... Check out BoardGameArena.com. The site boasts millions of global players and a couple hundred different board games you can play in real time or in a turn-by-turn format. The best part? It's all free to play. I am kind of astonished we did not somehow get board games
0: as a topic for History Political Science 252L, Chris. So thanks for slipping that in. Okay, Sam, your second.
2: On last week's episode of the 252, we talked a little bit about horse racing, which is one of my favorite sports. Uh, And if this were a normal year, we'd be basking in the light of last weekend's Kentucky Derby. But alas, there was no Derby. So what should you watch? Well, I think you should go back and watch three races that were uh, won by the only horse that is also a goat, Secretariat. (laughs) Uh, It's probably a name you've heard before, but have you ever actually seen him run? In 1973, Secretariat won Horse Racing's Triple Crown by posting record times for each of the three races and these records still stand 47 years later if you've never seen his victory in the belmont stakes you're in for a real treat uh, it's on the short list of the most dominant performances in sports history he's racing against a small field but these are all the same horses that stuck with him in the derby and the preakness both of which were run in record times But in the Belmont, it looks like Usain Bolt racing against the hosts of the 252. (laughs) So my three to see are the 1973 Kentucky Derby, Preakness Stakes, and Belmont Stakes. They're all available on YouTube and will take you a total of about 12 minutes to watch.
0: The 73 Belmont Stakes is the most spine-tingling sports moment I've ever seen. It's incredible. Okay, I will finish with wrestling. Not pro wrestling, but amateur wrestling. It's definitely not one of my favorite sports, but I'm gonna recommend Zion, an 11 minute Netflix documentary short about a high school wrestler from Columbus, Ohio. Zion Clark was born without legs. Let me repeat and underscore that. Zion Clark was born without legs, abandoned by his birth parents and grew up being abused in foster homes, but he persevered and found purpose and community in high school wrestling. He's now wrapping up his studies and athletic career at Kent State University. In a semester in which we've often, and I think appropriately, been critical of sports, I was happy to have Zion remind me of what's inspiring and ennobling about sports. So you can check that out on Netflix if you subscribe. Guys, thanks for a good episode. Uh, I don't actually know if next week is our season finale or not, but it'll be a good one as well as we talk more about esports. So, Chris, why don't you wrap this up for this
3: week? Thanks for listening. And on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you can also always get a hold of us at channel3900 at gmail.com. We'll be back in your podcast feed next week and maybe beyond that as well. And until we are, go Royals.